Hello, this is Jason Gewertz, editor and publisher of Sports Travel, and welcome to another episode of the Sports Travel Podcast. This episode will feature Al Kidd, the president and CEO of the Sports Event and Tourism Association, or Sports ETA, and Dr. Jennifer Stoll, who is the lead researcher on the landmark State of the Sports Tourism Industry Report that we'll be diving into during our conversation. But before we begin, this podcast is being sponsored by the Teams Conference and Expo, the world's largest gathering of sports event organizers and the destination and suppliers that serve the sports event industry. Teams 20 Virtual will be brought to you from Houston, October 19th through the 22nd, 2020. This year's conference will be a virtual experience and will once again feature the co-location of the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee's SportsLink educational program. The conference will also feature presentations from 48 event organizers at all levels of sports, offering updates on their organizations and their events. For more details on everything we have planned online at Teams this year, please visit teamsconference.com. And now, on to the conversation. For years, Sports ETA, formerly known as the National Association of Sports Commissions, used to produce an annual State of the Industry report in an effort to gauge the economic impact of the sports tourism industry. But association leaders were quick to note that the survey, while producing interesting results, was only as good as the number of member organizations willing to participate. Earlier this year, and before the COVID-19 pandemic hit, the association set out to do something a bit more ambitious with its research. Combining data from tourism economics, Longwoods International, and U.S. government research, as well as valuable information called from its members, Sports ETA was able to put together what is believed to be the most comprehensive research ever conducted about the sports tourism and sports-related travel industries. The end result, in 2019, sports-related travel accounted for more than $45 billion in direct spending, generating an estimated 69 million room nights across amateur sports and collegiate championship events. Those numbers, of course, will look drastically different in 2020, but the timing of the survey was nonetheless significant. By capturing where the market was in 2019 at its peak, the industry now has some benchmarks to shoot for as it recovers over the months and years ahead. In this conversation, we'll take a deep dive on this research and discuss how destinations and event organizers can take advantage of the numbers involved to make the $45 billion case for the industry's return. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Al Kidd, Dr. Jennifer Stoll, welcome to the Sports Travel Podcast. Well, thank you very much, Jason. I appreciate uh, being asked to be part of the, the leading broadcast in sports travel. Thanks for having us on. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for the compliment. Um, and Jennifer, it's nice to talk with you as well. Um, I have the pleasure of knowing both of you already, which makes us a little bit easier. But we're going to talk about a, a topic that I think is of considerable importance to the sports tourism industry, and that is a brand new a state of the industry report that Sports ETA has commissioned. And we're going to go into a lot of the details of what's in this report. But I think before we even start digging into the numbers and the data here, Al, I think I'll start with you just to talk about the the why. This is a survey that was just recently released and goes into detail, particularly on where the sports event industry was in 2019. But let's talk about how we got there. We all know, of course, what's happened in 2020, but this was in the works long before the pandemic came around. So Al, why don't we start with the reasoning behind putting this study together? And I should say at the out front, just in full disclosure, uh, North Star Meetings Group, which publishes sports travel, we have been a supporter of this project and uh, a proud supporter of it. We are, have always been behind 
uh, the notion of research and putting data and information in front of uh, destinations and sports event organizers. So I'll just say that up front that that we have been a proud supporter of this. But Al, talk to me a little bit about from your end, why the association even wanted to do this survey in the first place. Sure. Thank thank you. It's a great way to start out in terms of where the organization has come from in the last few years. And when I first came in, we took a look at the inventory of assets that we had and the kind of work they were producing for our members. And being a member-driven, member-funded trade association, it's, it's critically important that the members feel like they're getting value for the investments they make. Well, we tend to have a modest membership fee structure. You know, the events that we run uh, have, a, have a fairly traditional rate structure that goes with it. So creating value and making sure everybody feels that value is there is extremely important. So when we, when we set out to embark on the new strategy for the organization under the 2020 vision that we produced a few years ago, um, we had a couple pillars, four pillars in particular that we wanted to really spend time developing. And the first is education. We had advocacy, which we've done a significant amount of work with uh, advocacy during the pandemic. Uh, networking, which is our events, which we do, but the resource side, which this research report falls under, was something that we had extreme interest in developing new models, new ways to look at research, new ways to develop resource tools so that our members have analytical tools, have a toolbox to be able to work from. So when we brought Jen on board, she and I sat down, and uh, this has been about a two-year project to get to this point because we had to kind of rethink where we were going to be heading with with the resources that we're going to be providing for our members. So we we used to do, uh, the association used to do a study that was all self-reported by members, and they would get 150 to 200 members typically that would respond. And there was, you know, 2,500 members, so in uh, about 800 member organizations. So it was a very, a fairly small sample of information. And to, to publish a, what would be considered a state of the industry report, was something that we wanted to expand upon and get more depth and detail. So over the couple of years, we refined where we wanted to go with our research and resources. And hence, we, we partnered with uh, some of the best in the industry. Uh, and Jennifer will talk a little bit about who we partnered with to do this. But we, we wanted to use a variety of sources, not just self-reported. So we did, so we did utilize primary and secondary research information to, to be coupled with our um, kind of self-reporting surveys. And the goal here is to have an ongoing research program, and particularly with the state of the industry, that we continue to add context to this report uh, in other portions of the industry that are still uh, not included in this in, in this this report for now, uh, but also then to use this as a benchmark for going forward, so we can really measure against a high watermark, which we think 219 is a high is the high watermark in the recent 10 years. And it gives us a, a place of reference to go from there. So that's how we, we sat down to look at how we framed what the research was going to be. And uh, we wanted to uh, begin to work towards improving that value proposition for our information that goes to our members so that we can now look at, at some point, how we can widen the definition of success. And so the partnership with Northstar was, was significant because you guys gave us opportunity to expand our distribution uh, methodology and you had data collected that was valuable and added into the, the end result of what we've produced so far. So there's more studies in the works. Um, we plan to roll them out uh, every quarter or so going forward. We will measure uh, year over year in the, in the coming years. Um, but the whole idea is that we want to begin to paint a 
more detailed picture on a new canvas of what success means for all of us. And this gives us a terrific launching. I'm really proud of the work that we all produced, our partners, and it was really spearheaded by Dr. Jennifer Stoll, who uh, I'm so proud of the work that she's been able to pull together with the team that she had. Yeah. So before we get to uh, Jennifer, just real quick, is the goal here that uh, destinations will can use this data for their own advocacy and the in their own markets? Is there a bigger picture point here in doing the research besides the numbers that we'll get into here in a moment? Yes, there is, and I'm glad you asked that. There's there's a couple different aspects uh, that that fall into this the answer to that question. The first is um, there's going to be adjunct pieces to this going forward. We're going to be reviewing. Uh, sports facilities across America, and we're going to actually taking a, a deeper dive into the impact that collegiate and professional sports have in addition to what we've already produced. So there's going to be a, a wider swath of information, and we're hoping our destinations can not only utilize this to help them you know, justify to their funding partners and their, their community councils and their mayors and their tax districts, you know, the real value of sport. But the beauty of this is now we have a template and a, and a process set up for the wide definition and the pieces that go into the definition that each market can now produce their own singular report for their market. And we've talked with Tourism Economics about developing that. We have the template already. So if a market wants to do a deep dive uh, on their particular market and where they can go and the facilities they could utilize and the types of uh, events that they can bring into their market, uh, this is all kind of pulled together, Jason, with the idea that we would do a global study and then we can, we can take it all the way down to regional. And uh, if interested by some of the destinations, uh, sports commissions or DMOs, we can do a destination overview and and really get into the depth of this. Okay, excellent. Well, Al, that's a great overview of kind of the why behind the project. So, Jennifer, let's segue a little bit into the how. Uh, I do want to, of course, get to the numbers and uh, and talk a little bit about what you found. But before we even do that talk for a minute. Al mentioned a couple different organizations, but who was involved in this research and how were you working to kind of pull all these groups together to get to these final numbers? That's a great question, Jason. You know, this, as Al mentioned, this was a fairly significant uh, process to pull all these pieces together. And one of the great things about this project is we really had the opportunity to go into it with a blank slate. We had a whiteboard And Al and I kicked around some ideas to say, if we were to produce the most comprehensive report that this industry has ever seen, what types of things would we include when it comes to the state of the industry and in economic impact analysis specifically? And once we sort of put everything out on the table, kind of this blue sky conversation, we were able to dive back in and start to analyze who would be appropriate partners for that. And of course, North Star Meetings Group, a part of those conversations and jumped in with the vision from the onset, um, but really got extremely fortunate to have good relationships with our friends Adam Sachs and his team over at Tourism Economics and Amir over um, at Longwinds International. And, and those two groups provided the bulk of not only the data that went into it, because as Al mentioned, this was beyond just a self-reported uh, member study. We, we did incorporate aspects of that, but we were really able to draw on their expertise in terms of travel figures, pooling from the Bureau of Labor and Statistics, and other more broad scope data sources that we hadn't traditionally drawn upon in the past. 
Well, we've uh, we've buried the lead a little bit here because we haven't uh, talked yet about any of the numbers in this report. So uh, maybe this is the time that we start talking uh, some of the details. One of the big takeaway numbers here is $45 billion, which is a number that represents the spending from sports-related travel in the year 2019. And so we're going to talk about some of these numbers that are in here because it's, it's an enormous number of how we get there. And Al alluded to this a little bit in his comments, but let's be clear from the outset on which aspects of sports-related travel you dove into in this report, because this covers all of amateur sports and some of collegiate sports. But I know that we left out certain aspects of professional collegiate sports in here. So I just want to be clear when we get into these numbers, kind of what they represent. So Al or Jennifer, do you want to talk about the scope here uh, when we talk about sports-related travel and, and what we're including and what we're not including? Yeah, sure. I'm glad to. You're right, Jason. We we accounted for all of amateur sports. We accounted for the championships portion of collegiate sports, and we did leave out intentionally professional sports in this first iteration of the report. And there was a lot of a lot of think time that went into that approach. And really, what we wanted to get at in doing that is we wanted to remember where our wheelhouses in terms of the industry. We are sports events in tourism. So when we look at regular season collegiate events that happen on a, you know, on a daily and weekly basis or happened, I should say, in, in 2019, there's probably very little handholding that goes along with those things occurring in a destination that are specifically tied into the efforts of a DMO, CVB or sports commissioner, the like. But when it comes to hosting the championships for collegiate sport, we see those from NAIA bids to NJCAA bids, NCAA bids across the board. Our industry as a whole is much more active in, in that regard. So from our perspective on the collegiate side of things, it made sense to to dive right into with this in this first go round and what we really have our hands in as an industry. And the same can sort of be extended to professional sports because what's actually being proactively bid on by destinations in this professional sports realm makes up a fairly small sliver of our overall work in the industry comprehensively. Right. Well, one of the things that I took away from the data here, we mentioned this 45 billion number, which represents uh, the the total spending from sports related travel. That's a number that has gone up, according to this study, up 2.2 billion from the year before. And again, these are 2019 numbers. So, uh, you know, Al, as you talked about at the beginning, I think this sort of sets the benchmark of where the industry was before this most unusual year that we're heading in. But to me, that seems to be one of the takeaways of this study is that we were seeing pretty steady growth here over the last five to 10 years, regular steady growth up until 2019. Is that one of your takeaways here as well, Al? Yes, it is. And the, you're, you're absolutely correct. There has been steady growth the last five years. And the uh, there's a number of things that have, that have fueled that. Uh, one, the economy kept uh, was buoyant. Um, the continued expansion of, of travel sports and pay-to-play sports uh, really fed into the tournament business. And, and really, uh, the significant uh, amount of growth that's taken place in local facilities around the country, as I've often said, they've kind of cropped up like weeds across America. They're everywhere. And you know, not only are they uh, outlets to, to host the travel sports and to have tournaments on weekends, uh, but they also become a significant tax enhancement development and delivery tool for the local market. So those aspects um, of the industry in the last five years have helped fuel the uh, very, very steady growth 
in primarily which has been the tournament business uh, and fueled much by by youth sports. And so we see that slowing obviously right now, but doing the, the 2019, you saw a, a big jump and there's a number of facilities now that have come online, local sports facilities that are indoor or outdoor, primarily aimed at youth. And there's been a really big uh, push within those facilities in those communities and markets to put a lot of effort into tournaments and tourism. And so the sports events and tourism side has really begun to become an important aspect. You know, when Virginia Beach developed their program, they, they dipped into the, the local market to get an enhancement from the, the local hotel tax to be able to help fund the debt service for developing the, the brand new facility that's, a, that's absolutely spectacular. One of the criteria for that brand new building was that a bulk of the activity and utilization of the facilities were aimed at tournaments uh, to generate revenue and to cover debt service and generate um, tax dollars and, and profits for the community. So there's been a big enlightenment around those buildings. And um, so we were happy to do the 19 study. Now, it just so happened that COVID happened, and that's why we added an element uh, into this report, uh, which was an analysis uh, that we were able to generate at that point of what the impact has been uh, as a result uh, somewhat of COVID. And we, we plan to uh, get into a much deeper dive in um, the mid part of 21 to recap 20 to be able to compare to 19. Yeah, well, you mentioned that. I was going to bring it up uh, later. That type of information is in this report as well as far as what's happened in 2020. And I think, you know, Al, Jennifer, it's it's kind of telling. Uh, we all, of course, anecdotally know uh, what's happened here this year. But, you know, according to the initial research, just to put some context on how strong things were in 2019 and how strong they were leading up to this year, uh, you know, according to your own research here, just in March alone this year, nearly 10 million fewer people traveled to participate in or to watch a, a sporting event. That's a, in dollar terms, that's a $2.5 billion loss. And, you know, I saw your estimates through the end of the year is that uh, 75 million fewer people are expected to travel this year alone. I think to me, while those numbers are, are uh, alarming and startling and, and probably not surprising, to me, it also kind of speaks to the strength of the numbers that you were seeing before all the way up through 2019. And I think the industry is going to have to shoot for as we start to work our way back and into a recovery. Yeah, Jason, you're exactly right. And I mean, the that 75 million fewer projected to travel for sports events in 2020 compared to 2019. You know, that's a that's a huge impact in a 20 20 billion dollar estimated loss for 2020 in direct spend only, not counting indirect and in, induced spending. So it's going to be huge. And obviously, none of us could have predicted that this was going to happen at the onset when we were deep into data collection for this report. But right. what it what it's also done is is presented a, a really great opportunity to have a solid foundation on where we were prior to the pandemic. And, and we're hopeful that this information can resource our industry to provide that really important high watermark and benchmarking into recovery and hopefully expansion beyond. Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting. And maybe we'll segue back to a, just to a, a better times here and talk about some of these 2019 numbers because it's a lot easier and more pleasant to talk about. But one of the other outcomes of this report, of course, uh, looks at, well, you look at a number of different factors, one of which is room nights, which is a measure traditionally that this market has always gone to. And your study points to 69 million room nights being generated from sports-related travel in 2019, which is a huge number. But you also go into 
a number of factors there beyond just the issue of room nights, which I, I think is interesting. You've got factors broken down by transportation, by money spent on food and beverages. Uh, just for some context here, you know, the report shows that Sports-related travel resulted in spending of over $12 billion just on transportation, $8.5 billion just on food and beverages. And and Al, I think that's probably some of the point here of this research as well. I would imagine that in that it, it goes into, of course, the issue of overnight uh, spending and overnight lodging. But there's there's a lot more at play here when we talk about the economic impact of sports-related travel just beyond the hotel room stays. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, part of the reason we wanted to get into the depth and scope of this is, is to get a better picture of what the real impact is in, in a marketplace. And uh, one, of the, one of the factors that Jennifer and I have, have looked at over and over is how, how uh, sports travel and tourism really plays a role in job creation in communities. We've talked to a number of economic development corporation personnel around the country and some of the municipalities, and, and we know for a fact that uh, the HR department's uh, organizations and uh, companies inside markets use sports as one of the factors for determining when families move there. What are my kids going to do? What can they play? My kid played lacrosse in, in the city we're moving from. What do we do? So we wanted to look at and continue to widen that impact and so when looking at the job creation, uh, that was a very, very important element of it. Um, one thing that we, we really dove in deeply was tournament operations, because that has been somewhat of a cottage industry that's been born out of these facility expansion I mentioned earlier. And as those tournament operations e- evolve, you've got uh, facility administrators, tournament administrators, you know, t- tournament maintenance people that take care of the fields and the buildings. You've got trainers, you've got nutritionists, you've got PT going on. So we look at we look at sports tourism um, much wider than just the economic impact that's generated with the hotel room. We look at the job creation and the impact it has on the local small business people, which you know, small businesses in America make up over 50% of the employment. And those are the people right now with COVID that have been significantly impaired in terms of their ability to continue their business running. Yeah, and Al, let's talk. Let's talk about those numbers. The study shows that uh, something like seven hundred forty thousand jobs were sustained by sports tourism, and that includes over four hundred thousand uh, direct jobs just uh, in the industry itself. That's a big number. It is, and and Jen, you're probably better equipped to go into the detail as you're more familiar with some of the specifics and talk about the employment. Yeah, well, it just goes to speak that you know when we think about sport tourism in general, we don't we we think about the event taking place in a destination, but there is a vast support network that operates that has to operate successfully in order for that industry to to thrive like we saw in 2019. So from the jobs perspective, you know, I, I would look at that as a really key indicator coupled with the fact that not only is economic impact important, but it's also the one step further going into the specific tax generation for these local governments that that is really that direct return on investment with with their sport tourism as efforts in their communities. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that too, Jennifer, because that, that's a number that's in here as well. And I think it's a, it's a great one when we talk about uh, what destinations uh, can do as far as advocating for themselves in the industry. The numbers there, sports-related travel in 2019 generated $14.6 billion in tax revenue. And your estimates show something like $6.8 billion accruing just to state and local governments. So again, you know, speaks to the overall impact uh, beyond just the room nights as well. Yeah, it absolutely does. And I think Sports ETA has somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 state association 
representatives right now um, across the country. And then obviously from the from the municipal or local tax perspective, you know, it is about people coming and staying in your hotels, but that's just the beginning of that cycle, right? It's about the economic impact that's generated from them. But but those are those are dollars in the in the lodging tax, in sales and use tax for for a municipality or a county that are directly going back into the city coffers to provide infrastructure parks and recreation, a variety of services that are auxiliary and ancillary for residents to enjoy. And that really ties into this bigger picture about how what we do in the sport tourism industry plays a part in community development. Because if you can get those dollars to come in from outside of your community, but they turn around and resurface in your community by with paved streets and nice parks and things of that nature, now all of a sudden you're tying into that those softer, kind of harder to measure quality of life and business recruitment and retention metrics, which is really taking the lid off the top. Yeah. And and I don't mean to downplay certainly by any means the importance of, of overnight travelers, you know, citing some numbers again from the report. It shows that 96.4 million people traveled and spent the night uh, at a, a sports event in 2019. That's up one and a half million from the previous year. And your estimates show something like 54% of all sports-related travelers are spending the night somewhere. So it's still a a significant portion. And I imagine, Al, you know, as we start talking about recovery and and what it looks like, uh, obviously things are going to be different this year, likely next year. But I would think there's going to be a market again for for overnight travel and for uh, marketing these events as, as something that people can can go to for more than just an afternoon, uh, although it may be a while until we get there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I'm asked often uh, and I hear from time to time from my peers out there about sports leading uh, leading out of, of, of this pandemic. And and frankly, we're not there yet. I, I'm very pragmatic about the look of this, you know, wh- where the industry is and where it's going. And yes, there are some events that are taking place and they're still trying to sort out the science of all this. But if you just look at the data, say, for example, on page 18, we get into the, the amount of jobs and the type of industries that it affects. Those industries right now and those jobs have been uh, se- severely curtailed as a result of, you know, they're included in these unemployment numbers that we get, get projected every single month. And so the, the, the winding down of the infrastructure around the sporting events and activities, along with the hotels and airlines, which help support the ability to, to have those kind of hosted uh, group gatherings, They'll, they'll come back and they're going to come back bigger and better than ever. We're just not there yet in terms of coming out as this pandemic continues to be defined by the scientists and, and, they're, and they're trying to decide as best they can as our markets. And one of the most confounding factors is so all of these industries right now that are, that are unable to open and you can, you can look at the numbers, there's thousands and thousands of them. They'll come back strong as long as they're able to, to survive the, the ability right now to not have ongoing income. But we do see them coming back strong. Uh, the financial implications are going to have to get some support by the government uh, in our belief. But um, there's a lot of people that will be ready, willing and able to, to lead the sports out when the time is appropriate. And Jennifer had talked earlier about the number of research organizations who were involved in this project. We talked about Longwoods and, and tourism economics and all your data that you were able to cull from uh, from U.S. government figures, et cetera. But you also did receive input from, from your member destinations. Uh, and at the end of the report, I thought were some interesting findings and, and stats there as well, just from your own members. Uh, not surprisingly, almost 100% of them have you know hosted a youth sports event in 2019. But uh, you know the numbers were, were pretty strong. If I saw the stats right, an average of 
70 events per year, you know, based on the uh, sports events that are being hosted in all these destinations. That to me also just proves the, uh, the viability of the market and just how, just how strong sports is in the overall portfolio of a lot of these destinations from bringing events in. Um, did anything surprise you guys one way or the other from, from even the data that you were able to pull from your own members? Yeah, yeah, that's a great point, Jason. I mean, we saw some very um, optimistic figures, both in terms of number of events that organizations were hosting in 2019, also in terms of what their budgets were doing at that time. Um, so obviously some impacts on those from the pandemic perspective. But, you know, there's also some deep, interesting nuances that are that might be not picked up on first glance, but things such as Diversification of revenue through event ownership and operation among destinations is a trend that we've been watching for a little while. And if nothing else, clearly the, the pandemic has shown, you know, the need to diversify revenue streams. And I think that is something that we're going to be watching very closely going forward as to how destinations react to that. Um, I would say another. Yeah, that, caught, yeah. that caught my eye too, Jennifer. I think it was almost 40% of destinations mm-hmm. uh, had an event that they owned. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, and that is one way, if you look at it from a destination's perspective, that they're able to take something that may, might inherently be out of their control and take it back within their control and say, hey, what assets or resources do we have available now to be creative? And Al and I have talked about this at length, but the things we're seeing our constituents do around the country in terms of creativity and innovation, um, despite difficult circumstances, has been Phenomenal. I mean, there's been some great programs implemented from what John Lugbill's done in Richmond for, you know, virtual races across the country to a variety of other examples I could name. We're starting to see this is also a great opportunity for, for our industry to think differently than it has in the past. Yeah, I agree, Al. I imagine you share a, a similar thought as far as uh, this need to diversify and, and what some of this stuff might look like in the months and years to come. I do agree. And, and you know, one of the things and the, the beauties of the relationship we have with Destinations International and, and being able to be on their CEO calls with some of the leaders of the DMOs, you know, one of the things I know that they're focusing on is how, how do we keep ourselves out of this pickle that we're in right now with our with almost being a sole source of our revenue to be able to run our operation being hotel uh, taxes. And so there's a big drive on the DMO side right now and on diversifying revenue. And they're looking at owned and operated events, things like festivals or sporting events or combination events. How do we how do we begin to we, we begin to build alternative revenue and income sources to to help us, you know, weather some of these kinds of activities and storms. And, you know, on the on the sports side, you know, aside from owned and operated events, more and more of our markets are getting involved in community health based programs. And that's a we see that as a big opportunity, both in terms of becoming a more valuable local community asset, uh, but secondly, also to, it generates income with programming and events and activities that they do. So we do see uh, a widening of how people are going to look at defining this. And you know, one of the biggest differences I think that people are understanding on the DMO side is in our industry, this report proves very clearly that once we sign a contract, our work begins with the relationship with the rights holders and to conduct an event. Oftentimes in the DMO world, they sign a contract for a group meeting, which is primarily a big, a big part of their business. And uh, they don't have a lot of ground services they have to provide. But if you look at all the list of jobs that are created through youth sports tournaments and amateur sports and the events that our people in our markets oversee and support, uh, there's lots and lots of jobs and lots of activity that we have to interface that augment and help create the event and you know help create memories for the people that participate in those events. So we are seeing 
a rise in innovation. Uh, we're encouraging people to think differently. We don't see the outcome of this in a year looking anything like it did a year ago. There are people that are, you know, keep talking about going back to normal. I've never understood what normal is, but I can tell you that um, whatever it was, um, those that are innovating right now are going to come out with more business on the other side than those that stay in the same place. Yeah, it's it's an interesting point, Al. I mean, it was one question that I kind of wanted to uh, conclude here as well. It's a little a little frightening, but I mean, we have these benchmark numbers here for 2019. I guess you know one of the questions, of course, is how long do you think it'll be until we get back to these numbers? But maybe the question isn't so much that as what is that mix of revenue going to look like? I mean, even if we got to this number, it may look different than what the traditional model had been for the last couple of years leading up to 2019. People are going to have to be doing some things differently, finding uh, just newer, different sources of revenue. Yeah, Jen, why don't you start off and, and, and respond, and I'll respond after you're finished. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things we took into consideration on the COVID impacts is, you know, working with our good partners at, at Tourism Economics to project forward a little bit. And of course, this is an ever moving target. We all know that by this point in time. But, you know, it's going to be it's going to be well into 21. And to Al's point, I, I even think when we talk about what a normal is, it is it is going to be different. There is no question about that. So how do we as an industry adapt and be creative in increasing or continuing our relevancy despite these changing circumstances. Yeah, and one of the things that we believe is going to have to happen is the the old of what was, uh, people are going to have to come off that definition because, you know, with the amount of layoffs, and, and we know just in tracking our members that well over 100 of our lead contacts at 100 destinations are no longer there. So there's been a reconsolidation in the sales function within DMOs that had a sports you know, practice. Um, there's been some cutbacks across the industry. And so as they refortify and begin to build back, you know, there's going to be a challenge uh, with staging some of these, these events because a lot of the events rights holders have been accustomed to getting financial support or service support from markets, and, and they're going to be impaired and challenged. So that dynamic in and of itself is going to have to look different, mainly because they don't have the dollars there. And again, a core element for the income to be able to do those kind of things uh, across these marketplaces, start with the hotel, motel tax basis in, in which they de derive most of their revenue to be able to spread out and to bring events in. So there's going to be some probably horse trading and there's going to be some innovative ways that organizations are going to have to work together, both rights holders and destinations, to be able to stage the events that may not look the same economically but I'm a big believer that we have an awful lot of smart people that'll figure out a way to make this come together. But they also have to be prepared to, to come together in a way that, that may not have been done before. All right. Well, we've got two of the smartest people on this call, and uh, Alan, Jennifer. We've talked about a lot of this report. Are are there any things that I haven't touched on here, or that you think are worthy of of pointing out, either you know through the research that you've just done here, or or the message behind what you'd like to spread out to the industry, uh, you know, based on the results that you found in here? Jennifer, I'll, I guess I'll start with you and then we can segue to Al as, as we wrap up here. But uh, anything that we haven't talked about or, or points in here that were particularly notable to you? Yeah, I think uh, one thing that I would comment just an extension of what Al just what just mentioned is the way that we're doing things differently. I mean, the report from 2019 shows that 73% of our destinations paid bid fees in 2019. 
So on one hand, you have the destinations who had the financial capacity to be able to do so. And on the other hand, you've got rights holders who, to some extent, may have been dependent upon those bid fees to operate a financially viable event. So I think that is another trend that we're going to have to watch going into 2020 as those funds undoubtedly have been have been limited in some capacity and what that does in terms of the business transaction between destinations and rights holders. We've seen those bid fees creep higher and higher and higher over over recent years. But it's going to be really interesting to see how that aspect of the business gets gets renegotiated. Yeah, agreed. Al, why don't we bring it home here? Any uh, any thoughts here in conclusion about the, the either topics we didn't uh, talk about or kind of what the messaging is here as we move forward? Yeah, I think uh, there's a couple things, Jason, just to, to sum it all up. You know, as we're going to work very hard working with our members and per- people within the tourism industry at large about defining and widening the definition of success and, and the value proposition for members. So when they go to try and justify their work to their funding partners and, and to show their community the kind of great work they do, whether it's community sentiment, how they feel about the sports, there's a lot of aspects that we are in the midst right now of developing protocols and reports around that, that are going to help our members. And we want to really encourage our membership to continue to participate in the research requests that we we send out and we ask because there hasn't been a day gone by since March where I'm not called by people in our membership, people outside our membership, people in media who have questions about what's going on. And the only way we know is if we were able to pick up data from our members. And fortunately, one of the one of the silver linings of COVID uh, and, and this downtime is that our members have had more time and they have filled out these surveys and we've gotten terrific numbers of response. And we hope that continues because there isn't anything better than to be able to go back to our members and tell them where we were and, and where we're going and the kind of data that they can use because when they go to their bosses and they want to justify something or they want to come up with a brand new program, we want to be able to provide at least some element of support around the data collection and the, and the reporting the results. And probably the last thing is we've had a very unique opportunity I wouldn't say it was something we hoped for, but essentially because of this situation, we have a total reset. So this 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 2019 study, which we were so excited when we started and, and we're still excited with the data, it now is the high watermark. So we, we're able to do a reset now and we can really track going forward and measure against on a regular basis performance improvements and report it back to our membership and those people that are the funding partners on what's happening in the growth and the recovery from this benchmark. So we had a unique opportunity to get a reset um, and it wasn't in the plans, but this is how it's worked out. So it's our it's our intention, Jason, to continue to fill the pipeline with valuable information to our members. And we just encourage them to continue to participate so they can have a voice in that uh, in those results. Yeah, well, as I'm sure Jennifer knows, uh, a lot of times when you go into research, you never know where it's going to lead you. And and uh, the the circumstances this year after you had started this research uh, certainly are extraordinary. But uh, I agree, Al, it's, uh, you know, it is a reset. And I think it provides all kinds of opportunity for the industry to take a look at where they were and what they're doing now and and where they're going. So, uh, you know, we're we're proud to uh, partner with you. We're going to be monitoring and 
and reporting on everything that is yet to come here with your your studies to come. So I would just congratulate you both on, on this report. It's unlike anything we've cited before in the past or seen. It is as in-depth uh, as anything that I've, that I've come across. And uh, I do think it'll be of use to everyone in the industry at this point. Encourage everyone certainly to take the deep dive and go uh, see some of the stats that we didn't even talk about here uh, on the discussion. So Al, Jennifer, I just want to thank you as always for your time and uh, and your support. And I have a funny feeling we'll be doing this again at, at various points uh, as we chart the recovery. I hope so, Jason. Thank you. And thank you, Jason. You did a terrific job moderating as always. And, and we appreciate what you do for the industry and the reporting you do to keep people uh, aware of what the latest changes and the newest things are going on. So thank you. Thank you, Al and Jennifer. Appreciate it. This has been another edition of the Sports Travel Podcast. Thanks for listening. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast on all your favorite platforms, including iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Past episodes are also available at sportstravelmagazine.com, which also features breaking news and in-depth features on stories related to the sports events industry. Be sure to visit us daily at sportstravelmagazine.com, at Sports Travel on Twitter and Instagram, and at Sports Travel Magazine on Facebook and LinkedIn. Until then, this is Jason Worth for sports travel, and thanks for listening.